G'day folks and welcome to the Australian Fly Fishing Podcast. My name's Josh Power and this podcast is an opportunity for me to interview anglers in the fly fishing community, both within Australia and overseas. I'll be speaking with people that I find interesting and inspirational, industry leaders and anglers that have helped pave the way for future generations and hopefully in turn preserve a piece of fly fishing history. I hope you enjoy the Australian Fly Fishing Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Fisho's Tack World Harvey Bay, your one-stop fishing shop on the Fraser Coast stocking a wide range of fly tying materials and tackle with access to all the leading brands. Mako Eyewear, a proudly Australian-owned eyewear company that has been on the leading edge of polarised sunglasses for over 25 years. Manic Tackle Project, a collective of like-minded anglers bringing some of the world's best fly fishing brands to the Australian and New Zealand market, including Sims, Scott Fly Rods, Able, Ross and Waterworks Lamps and Reels, Airflow Fly Lines, Loon Outdoors and much more. And Garmin Australia, whether you're chasing a new chart plotter, fish finder, trolling motor or audio system, Garmin has you covered. G'day, I'm Craig Redford. I uh, live in Perth and I've uh, been a fly fisher now for 40 some odd years um, after moving here from Victoria when I was uh, 14 in 76. And Josh has invited me to come along and have a bit of a chat about what we've been up to. G'day, Noddy. Well, first of all, I just want to say thanks for coming on to the podcast and having a chat. I've, um, I've heard your name over the years mentioned amongst people like Peter Morse and that sort of thing when it comes to uh, fishing like sinking lines and dredging for big fish like Jewfish and Samson. So I was interested to get your side of the story, what you've been up to over there in WA. Yeah, mate. Yeah, I was uh, pretty lucky to meet up with Pete um, oh, over 20-odd years ago, but had followed his his work you know, prior to that and, and a lot of the other pioneers of the sport. And uh, yeah, and sort of picked up along the along the way stuff that they'd done and, and what we were doing on, on our side of the country that um, was a bit... Uh, separated, if you like, until the internet sort of came along. There was a, um, a bit of a communications um, vacuum, but uh, things seem seem to be powering on a lot more now. Yeah. Well, we might, before we get into that, we might just jump into a bit of your background first. So originally you grew up in Victoria before you moved to Western Australia. So um, what was happening then? When did you first pick up a flyer rod? Were you chasing anything back in Victoria or was it more so when you got to WA? Yeah, well, I um, I grew up um, in the in the western suburbs of um, of Melbourne, and uh, where it sort of was semi rural to start with, and we had a local river, the Mabranong River, sort of um, about a mile or so away from home, and did a fair bit of mucking around down there, and sort of Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn lifestyle, and uh, had a uh, had a couple of uncles who were pretty keen on um, on fishing, and I tagged along with them a fair bit, uh, but I also took myself off to places like the Williamstown Pier and um, me and a mate from school used to go catching flathead and mullet and stuff like that and the local river we'd freshwater fish for um, for tench and the local parks for carp and, and that sort of stuff um, and uh, used to do a um, family trips up to southern New South Wales just over the border from um, from Swan Hill near Bell Reynolds and uh, fishing there for yellow belly and, and mainly carp in those days and went to Mary Murray Cod and stuff caught. Um, didn't sort of see much in the way of fly fishing stuff, but I uh, I did read a lot of the uh, the old Australian angler mags. Had another uncle that was buying them every month, and uh, and saw a bit of fly fishing stuff in there, and sort of got it sort of got a bit of interest in it. And when I was fishing with um, with one of the uncles on one of his uh, his trout based things, I saw a bloke pick up a fly rod and sort of thought, ah, oh, that's what it's all about. And but then uh, I sort of 
had a hard time trying to work out how to get the uh, the, the really thick fly line into the side, those little size 14 and 16 hooks they were using and a little bit more reading discovered that there was actually a thing called nylon leader and off you went from there. But I never did any fly fishing in um, in Victoria. Um, it wasn't until we moved here that I that I sort of uh, got uh, more interested in it. And um, and then uh, yeah, just sort of set about asking questions um, locally, you know, pestering the local tackle shops. As again, I was that annoying fourteen year old kid that hangs around tackle shops. And uh, we uh, yeah, sort of struggle. Gear was always a struggle back in those days. So I'm talking sort of seventy six through to seventy eight. Um, and uh, you basically may do with what you get hold of, and uh, yeah, and, and limited resources too. I was, uh, it was just a, you know, I was yet what year 11, 10, 11 um, high school student. So, uh, yeah, scrounged up an old Olympic 460 reel, which cost me about six or seven bucks, and, and I found a, found a Fenwick steelhead um, spin rod blank that was a pretty popular uh, rod over here, which was sort of around a 10, 11 weight ish. Sort of thing, and and uh, taught myself how to how to build rods and build that up as a fly rod. Scrounged a um, a really cheap weight forward line and and set about thrashing around trying to work out how to cast it and do all that sort of thing, while you know reading mag- what magazines you could get hold of. Um, then uh, sort of hanging around the local tackle shop, which was um, Harvey's Tackle, the old Blue Water Tackle in Scarborough. Um, I uh, met up with with Hal down there and. Uh, we became pretty good mates. Um, joined the local answer club and uh, saw a lot and saw and, and yeah, met a lot more guys that were, were saltwater fly fishing and sort of got uh, yeah, pointed us along the along the way from there. I think a lot of guys here in Harvey Bay and around Maribyrnong, a lot of the guys that got into fly fishing, they originally started sport fishing in the answer clubs and doing all that light sort of two kilo, four kilo tackle, um, and that sort of progressed into fly fishing afterwards. So I think those clubs are a great way to get started in the sport. Oh, for sure. Um, there was a there was quite a, quite a, 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 a large membership, and, and there was a you know, big spread of you know, well older blokes, you know, blokes in their forties and fifties, and right down to the young blokes like myself, and uh, and a, and a lot of really keen young guys were into the uh, into the sport, and guys whose names you won't have heard of, and you know, on the east coast, you know, Steve Demarchi and the Moran boys, uh, Billy Morrow, um, Ron Johnson, who was the, the club president, and uh, all but all really good fishermen. Um, and most of them cut their teeth, again, as you said, sport fishing and then sort of progressed onto the fly fishing thing. And most of the literature you were reading, was that coming out of the States? Like I can't imagine there would have been too much in the magazines at this stage in Australia. There, no, I never actually um, never actually saw much in the way of American uh, stuff. Uh, the only thing I saw, saw from America was Lefty's original Fly Fishing in Salt Waters book and um, pretty much dog-eared that you know, from you know, page to page and pretty much wore, wore the pages out reading it. Um, yeah, just uh, what was in you know, the fishing world and, and modern fishing magazines, uh, you know, when fishing world, or the Australian angler became fishing world. Um, and you know, the likes of Paul Barker and um, Daryl Steele were writing in modern fishing a fair bit as well. So, uh, you know, sort of you know, read everything that they wrote. And, um, yeah, just tried to, to sort of work it out from there um, and, and got involved with a few of the few of the blokes in the sport fishing club to, um, to sort of, you know, learn a bit more about it and, and finally progress to actually catching a fish. Um, and it was just, uh, and, and at that stage I was, uh, as a kid, just uh, pushing pedals down to the local beaches. I lived only 400 metres from Scarborough Beach and, uh, and another another uh, couple of k's up the road, Trig Beach, and we used to walk out on the reef there carrying an eight-foot-tall tripod and perch ourselves on top of the tripod and fish for tra- tailor and salmon and stuff with bait. And um, 
Ron Johnson, the the uh, the answer club president, lived basically right on the beach there, and he wandered down one day with a fire rod, and I um and I and I'd been sort of talking to blokes about it, and uh, and then and saw John O'Cast, and he uh, and I said, you know, I was having trouble casting, and he basically showed me how to double haul from there, and once I once I got that bit of um, bit of stuff worked out, it was um yeah, it was plain sailing from there. Um, and and then started catching fish. Um, so off the, off that reef at Triggs, taking the fly rod down and wading out on the reef and catching snook and herring and just small stuff. Um, yeah, so sort of yeah, seventy. I suppose that was seventy eight ish. Um, yeah, and then um, then we sort of uh, finished high school and started doing trips away. I guess that would have um, started opening a few opportunities up for you, really, like you would have been driving by then and had a few mates that were probably keen to hit the road and adventure a bit. So, Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, having a, having a set of wheels underneath you does, um, does, does tend to broaden your horizons a bit. Um, but, yeah, Hal, Hal Harvey and myself and another, another good mate, Richard Cooper, we did a couple of um, pretty, uh, pretty good trips to uh, Cape Cuvier and Exmouth in, the, in 1980 and 81, which, uh, yeah, we caught a lot of fish. Um, the, the, the second trip we did to Cuvier in 81 was uh, we camped at Red Bluff uh, with Hal's little Brooker V12 tinny. Three of us fished out of that and, and um, was pretty much fisher cast, every cast for two weeks solid. Um, and, yeah, it's the best way to learn how to fish is to catch a lot of fish. Yeah, that's it. If you can um, spend time on the water and, yeah, actually get a fly in front of the fish, it progresses you a lot quicker. So, oh, Absolutely. Um, yeah, we, uh, we, we, uh, had a, we had a pretty that, – that trip, we, by that stage, we'd all, we're all pretty good with a, with a rod and reel and um, – and uh, but we weren't we weren't fishing sort of flash outfits. We, nothing had drags. So, you know what reels we had were all just rim control reels. Um, a couple of the boys had got hold of the uh, the scientific angler version of the old Hardy Marquis um, when uh, they, were, they were again made by Hardy and, and rebadged as scientific angler reels. And they had a, a rim control and a clicker. And um, yeah, we lost a line a lot of line off those reels catching you know ten kilo long tails and big mac tuna and. GTs and Goldens and Sharkies and Broadbars and Spaniards um, out of that little boat in two weeks. Uh, yeah, broke three or four world records and and um, and that was sort of the when um, when we got to we, by chance uh, in '81 we came back from that trip and and got to meet up with uh, Max Garth and Rod Harrison when they were doing their round Australia trip and uh, and I got the, the pleasure of telling Max face to face that I just broken his long tail fly rod world record which didn't please him that much but that's life <laughs> records are set and, and uh, they're to be broken so no that was that was really uh, a real buzz for you know young blokes like us to sort of meet those guys first up yeah it would have been a um, pretty exciting time because max was uh, one of the pioneers over there in the west and sort of harrow had um come up with a good friendship with max and ron pearson and people like that in the west and then himself being on the east coast it would have been good having that sort of east coast west coast there to draw information off and uh, would have been a couple of great blokes to learn from in the beginning. Oh, absolutely! Look, I um, I, I didn't know didn't know Max and and uh, did, hadn't sort of seen much of his stuff until sort of about the times we were doing those trips. You know, his cobia he got off the rocks and um, a big Spaniard he got off the Carnarvon jetty uh, and all the long tails. He had a he had quite a, um, a, a neat little group of young guys up there that were fishing with him: um, Rod Tomlinson, Chris Barber, and. Um, uh, Nigel Heald, uh, they were local local blokes in Carnarvon, all young blokes, and they all fished fish with Max on the rocks and all took up fly rods and, and caught fish. And um, um, Chris passed away, in a, I think, in a road accident. But uh, but I know I know both Nigel and, um, and Rod Tomlinson. So, 
But those, yeah, they, all those guys were, yeah, they were doing it long before any of us picked up a, a, a rod. And um, especially the stuff Max was doing, yeah, um, and uh, and Ron Pearson, you know, further up, a lot further up the road in the Kimberley, um, yeah, they were doing stuff that that um, yeah, they were way more remote than we were in Perth, uh, but they were getting it done. And um, yeah, it was a, it, like I said, it was a real buzz to sort of meet up with Adam and uh, and catch up with Rod at the same time. It was uh, it was pretty cool back uh, way back then. What sort of flies were you using back then for catching your Spaniards and your long tail? And was it mainly clouses and deceivers and that sort of thing? Or clouses hadn't been invented at that stage. Um, yeah, okay. They uh, they they were they were like a late eighties nineties thing, um, but uh, yeah, it was primarily deceivers. Um, you know, sort of the Brooks blonde style you know, bait fish patterns and and you know the standard sort of two o four o white deceiver, um, handful of saddle hackles, um, bit of bucktail, bit of flash. Um, and uh, occasionally a little bit of goat hair if we uh, if had access to that, um, and that was uh, that was you know, Ron Pearson's um, Ron Pearson's thing, the uh, using the goat on the on the um, on the deceivers. That was his um, his sort of well. He he basically would use a couple of cockatoo feathers and a bit of goat rather than saddle hackles and a bit of bucktail because it's what he could get hold of. But um, Max was a lot more fussy when it came to tying materials. Yeah. Okay. That. Um... I love that story about Ron with using, yeah, the cockatoo feathers and goat hair because it is just, yeah, pretty much use what you've got there and, and make the most of it and hope for the best. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Look, as, as yeah, pretty much everybody knows, gear and, and materials were hard to get hold of. A few of the guys here were um, importing stuff from the States in the way of materials from a crowd called Herters that were a big mail-order mob, so a bit like Bass Pro are now, I guess. Um, and uh, yeah, we could we would import uh, bucktail and feathers from there because we couldn't get it locally. Um, and then uh, then Kaufmans, um, we were you know getting stuff from them. Customs became a bit sketchy after a while with you know importing raw skins and things. But uh, it was a, it was a pretty good way of getting hold of uh, you know quality materials at a time when we couldn't get them in Australia. Yeah, and tying with goat hair, like how would you compare it to say bucktail or something like that? I've never tied with it before, so. Well, there's yeah, there's there's yeah, obviously various different grades of bucktail, but most of the goat that um, that we're using is is fairly um, fairly fine. Um, it's got a lot of movement. Um, it's got that goat smell. Whether that makes a difference or not, I don't know. But <clears throat> you can't wash that out of them, um, especially the stinky old billies we use. Um, but um, but no, it's uh, it does have the stuff that I've that I've got at the moment. It's got a real natural sheen to it. Um, not quite polar bearish, but it's pretty close. Um, it doesn't float like bucktail does. It doesn't have that hollow core. So, you know, in an environment where we're fishing now and getting flies, trying to get flies deep, we're, um, yeah, something that doesn't float an advantage for sure. And I guess the beauty is over there, like you can go hunting and you can keep the hair for your fly tying, but then you've also got the meat, which you can use for yourself for doing like your prosciuttos and doing roasts and all that sort of thing. So um, making the most of the animal, which is really cool. Yeah, yeah, it's um, you know doing the environment a favour as well because they're um, they're just ferals and um, yeah, if we can uh, if we can use up the uh, use up the the skins and the fur rather and uh, as well as the meat, it's a, a bonus. Plus, it um, it works. So I don't um, I don't have any I don't have any real prejudices about any one material over another. Um, just basically, I'm not a not a flash fly tire like most uh, most sort of blokes you know that have my vintage are. Um, they, uh, we just basically got got by with what we could get hold of, slapped it on the hook and took it fishing and caught fish. Yeah. And let's have a little chat about your um, relationship with Jeff Grist. Like I know you commented on one of the photos of Gordon Dunlop with one of the writ reels that Jeff actually produced. So when did you first meet him? 
Jeff was uh, Jeff was through was again through the sport fishing club. Um, that's when I first met him in about 1980. Um, and uh, Jeff was um, pretty much ahead of the game with a, with a lot of that sort of stuff. Um, bit of a real thinking sort of bloke. Um, he was a few years, quite a few years older than than all of us. Um, he probably 12, 14 years older than most of us. Um, and uh, he uh, he had a, a yeah pretty good uh, good setup, you know, boat and, and uh, car wise, and and uh, was always keen to to sort of push the uh, push the envelope a bit with what you could do in little boats. And uh, yeah, so Jeff and I, yeah, we became, became pretty good mates in about '82 and started fishing together. And um, yeah, we did a lot of stuff locally and uh, and trips away to Exmouth in in '82, Coral Bay, and places like that. And uh, just yeah, learning more about how to how to catch big fish on on light lines and, and use fly rods. Um, and uh, yeah, there, like, as I said, there was a certainly a scarcity of decent quality tackle available. So Jeff sort of took it upon himself to um, to to uh, make the rip reels, which are, um, there was, was actually a spelling mistake by the engraver. Uh, it was supposed to be R-I-T-E. They ended up with two T's on the spools. And uh, <laughs> it, wasn't until he, it wasn't until he picked them up. He made 13 of the original ones. Um, and uh, he uh, yeah, put them all together. And we actually sold them. up By that stage, I was working for uh, Mike Rowanfeld over here in the tackle box. And we sold all those reels through the uh, through the shop um i think around the same sort of time um bill classen had some reels made in melbourne the magnum reels as well um had a, a machine shop down there make them um, we sold quite a few of those um through the tackle shop we, we got off of bill um but now jeff and i we uh, we did a lot of stuff together uh, fishing wise um he uh he would take would well take anybody fishing that was keen um and uh, uh, we uh, we took a lot of guys out and caught their first fish on fly, um, and uh, and then yeah, a lot of those guys then went on and fished then went and fished with Jeff and I, and often did other things later on in life. Um, Simon Gilbert, uh, another local local bloke that we fished with, um, Ken Armart, Brett Poole, um, they all fished the the Mackerel Island Sevenard part of the world north of Exmouth back in the um, in the late eighties. Uh, and into the very early 90s, Jeff passed away in 92 of, um, of esophageal cancer. Um, and they uh, they caught a lot of fish. They caught a lot of big Spaniards, all the, pretty much all the world record Spaniards of decent size, except for the 10 kilo one that Morsi's got. Um, they were all, um, those boys caught those, you know, sort of 20 kilo. Ken Armart's got a 25 odd kilo fish on six and and that, that sort of stuff. But they, but they weren't just catching one or two fish. They would ca- have days where they'd get, you know, 20 plus fish to the boat on fly rod. Um, uh, and, you know, big fish. Um, they caught, they did, uh, you know, did all sorts of stuff, camped on an island for a month. Um, and Jeff, uh, yeah, as I said, Jeff um, was was always doing something. Always had a project and go. He, um, he built himself a 36 foot um, Roberts aluminium yacht. Um, with the plans to retire and um, and sail away into the sunset, but um, cancer unfortunately got the better of him, and uh, yeah, he was a good guy. Yeah, and it is um, it is good when you have people like that that are so willing to share information and give information because it just means the guys that are coming up in the sport have someone that they can learn off and bounce ideas off. Like we're pretty lucky here in the bay; we've got some people like Sid Bosch Hammer and guys that were there in the early days doing it that you can. Um, sort of run ideas by them and it is good when they when they're helping out that younger generation because yeah I think 
probably more so then than now, like there was a lot more um, trips organised with people, like taking someone that out that had never caught a fish on fly and it'd probably be something good these days to see a little bit more of. Um, people tend to play things a little bit more more close to their chest, I guess. Um, but, yeah, it sounds like, like talking to yourself and Harrow that everyone was pretty willing to share information and just get everyone onto fish and having a good time. Oh sure, um, yeah. There was, and it was all a big, always a, a big learning thing. I suppose it's like most things in life. If you're not, um, if you think you know it all, you're um, you're, you're wrong. You yeah. don't. Um, you uh, you're always learning, and if you um, if you if you shut your mind to, to sort of learning, you're um, you're just not real clever. I don't think. But um, when it came to the fishing side of things, we we basically took um, yeah just what what skills we we'd got through the sport fishing thing, and then just um, yeah took it on to the next level and. Uh, and caught a lot of very very big fish, um, but at the same time there was um, there was that that gap of uh, information transfer between the east coast and the west coast. So we were living in a bit of a vacuum over here with what was happening. And uh, as the sort of the fly fishing thing took off on the on the east coast um, in the sort of oh, when I guess it would have been the, the late eighties, early nineties was when it sort of all started to, started to kick off. But but there were there was a, a you know. A, big core of blokes over here right from the from the mid 70s that were um, were really keen on the on the saltwater fly stuff as i mentioned before ron johnson and and his mate billy morrow they were catching 30 pound shark mackerel and gts at Exmouth in the mid 70s uh on fly rods um you know putting them in for the old saltwater fly rodders of america record claims um and uh you know they they were they were up there sort of doing it long before uh, Exmouth was uh yeah the, the place to go fishing that it is now um and they're, and they're guys that you, you yeah, we all sort of learnt, you know, and our initial exposure to it was through blokes like that. Yeah. And you're pretty big on fishing, like sticking to IGFA class tippets and that's like not fishing anything heavier than 20 really. Do you think that started with your days in answer, like fishing that light tackle side of things or was it more so just a, something that you wanted to stick to for the, um, I guess, the like the history of the sport and the basically stay within the guidelines and the rules of fly fishing? Yeah, well, it certainly certainly stems back to the whole answer days and the yeah record claiming and the and the masters sort of answer you know fly rod masters things that we all claimed and did all that sort of stuff and um, oh yeah it's fly fishing for me has always been a light tackle sport and um, I've very very rarely seen the need to to go heavier than than ten kilo twenty pound um, uh, fished a couple of times with Morsi at Exmouth on billfish and gone to thirty pound because uh, I'm pretty much know I'm never going to break some of those records that that Dean Butler and Tom Evans and, and all those boys have uh, have set and um, yeah that's the the bar's pretty high for that <clears throat> for that sort of thing so I figure um, yeah just give myself a little bit of a half half a chance um, but um, yeah uh, that sort of 20 pound things always have been my upper limit uh, on for most of my fishing um, um, 99 percent of the time I'm, I'm fishing IGFA legal legal uh, leaders and stuff like that you know even the even on the dredging fish uh, the samsons and the jewfish and and that sort of stuff we do um, yeah uh, yeah um yeah it's just it's just a personal thing if blokes want to fish heavier we'll you know more power to them but um you know there's this look i know guys that that, that use um use tapered leaders to 60 60 60 tapered leader um <laughs> um but yeah, you know, they they catch a lot of fish. Um, I just like to do it my way these days, and uh, and always have. Um, there was a time when I was a bit more, a bit more vocal and a bit more um, yeah aggressive about how getting my point across. But really now I just um, yeah I think I've chilled out a little bit and, and uh, just let guys do what they want to do. But it's just a personal thing. Um, 
I just, uh, yeah, I think when um, when IGFA, uh, we're going to bring in a 15 kilo class for, for bill fishing tuna and sharks. There was a lot of stuff in the in the magazines and and the guys like like um, Dean Butler and, and Co that were uh, were setting the bar you know, on those sort of fish were saying and rightly so. I think that you know the the the, the big fish is the uh, the fish that everyone looks up to and if someone uses a leader that's heavier than than ten kilo catches a bigger one that's always going to be the one that everybody talks about. Um, you know, I think that big tarp on uh, Jim Holland's two hundred and two pound tarp on you know that's that's a that's a mighty fish, same as Tom Evans' big tarp on uh, on on eight kilo. Um, and they're 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 fish that you know you uh, would be, I suppose, their uh, significance would be diminished. Somebody comes along, sticks a sixty pound leader on, and you know manages to drag the two hundred and twenty or two hundred and thirty pounder out. Um, so no, it's just been a been a thing that I like to do. Um, I've probably lost a lot, a lot of fish because of it, especially the big Samsons and Amberjacks that we run into. Um, there's, uh, they can get pretty angry and there's sometimes no stopping them, but that's eh, just how it is. I think it's yeah. cool though that you really have to refine your rigging, like whether it be your knots and your leaders and that sort of thing and even your fighting technique. So at the end of the day, if you're sticking to those IGFA class tippets, it's going to make you a better angler as opposed to just fishing heavy leaders, skull dragging the fish in. Um, so, yeah, it'll definitely make you a better angler over time as you learn all of those things. Oh, for sure. Um, yeah, you, you, you learn a lot. You, you, you either learn a lot more about technique quickly or just keep losing fish. Um, you also find you break a lot less rods too. Um, I've never broken a rod on a fish in, in all the years I've been fishing. I have broken a couple of rods mucking around or doing stupid stuff, but never actually broken a rod on the fish. Um, and, uh, um, yeah. Uh, use appropriate gear and use it well. Um, even got a, a uh, decent milkfish over at Christmas Island a few years ago, and the boys were uh, were making all sorts of funny noises about the the sort of shapes I was bending Morsi's eight weight um, Sage One into. But uh, uh, but yeah, got the fish to the boat on um, on twelve pound tippet, and um, yeah, that um, that eight weight had some shapes that just but it was Morsi's rod, so it didn't really matter <laughs> if I had a broken. He's got plenty. Um, but no, but no, bend them, bend them right, keep them low, don't high stick them, uh, don't do silly stuff. Um, I suppose when it gets close to the boat, it gets a bit sketchy when you know, fish dive in close and stuff. But um, it's never been a real problem for me. But um, and that's just that, yeah, your um, your skills in tying knots, you have to be spot on, as you said. You've uh, you've got to, you've got to have you know, the right sort of skills to, and then hone your skills to uh, to get it right. Yeah, and we mentioned earlier Ron Pearson up in um, up in the Kimberleys there. He was one of the early pioneers over in the West there and like a lot of the guys from the East learned a lot of stuff from Ron and Max. When did you first meet him and start fishing with him? Yeah, I met, um, well, I knew of Ron um, through you know, stuff I'd read in the magazines and, and pretty much everybody talked about him in, in, um, in, yeah, uh, with, a, with a great deal of respect. And um, uh, Ron came to the tackle shop when I was working there in, uh, in 82 and I met him for the first time and um, he'd heard about the stuff we'd been doing um, as well with the with the um, the uh, the tuna and the mackerel and stuff at Kuvia, and uh, yeah, so we um, he just basically invited uh, myself and, and Jeff and another mate Richard Cooper up to to One Arm Point on Cape Levique, um, because it's where he was teaching at the time, and um, he'd spent or oh, I think he I think he went up into the Kimberleys in the mid '60s or thereabouts, um, and that's and started teaching up there. So he was there from then. Uh, I think he did forty odd years up in the Kimberley, um, and yeah, so we uh, we took ourselves in a Holden panel van with a Brooker um, V twelve upside down on a box trailer and and uh, drove from Perth one Friday night and 
went fishing with Ron for a, for well, we got nine days in because we got uh, we got about fifteen inches of rain in in May. Um, and getting uh, getting up the the road that goes from Broome up to One Arm Point was a bit of a mission. It's just a pinned down clay clay road, and or was then. Uh, we had to get towed through a creek by a main roads uh, dozer uh, grader rather to uh, to get out. Um, but look, we um, yeah we ran around the ran around the, the tide rips and stuff with Ron and up the creeks and um, he's uh, and just saw the he he had had sort of honed his tying skills and his and his fishing skills to the point where you could I could chuck one of my flies in alongside of one of his and the fish would swim past mine to eat his and it happened <laughs> on many many occasions whether it was the goat hair or not I don't know but um, yeah it was a bit of an eye opener to fish with Ron. And uh, I was I was fortunate enough to get invited to go back with him on a um, catamaran trip, um, similar to the one that um, that Harrow spoke about. Um, and uh, we went uh, we sailed his twenty four foot seaweed cat. It's an open tramp cat- catamaran. Sailed that from um, from One Arm Point to the Prince Regent River, which is oh, I think it's about two hundred and fifty or three hundred nautical miles. And um, we basically camped on the on the deck of that, or on the on the banks if the uh, conditions allowed. And, Spent two weeks in the river system with another good mate of his, Paul Kovalevs, and paddled a fourteen-foot Canadian canoe up and down the, the freshwater stretches of the of the Prince Regent. Which, as a, I was what twenty-two back then. Um, there was a bit of a boys' own adventure sort of stuff. Um, there were no tourists going up there. There was no tourist industry in the in the Kimberley at all. Um, caught barra, caught jacks, saw crocs, did all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, that was that was pretty cool. Um, it definitely would have been cool back then too, because you're probably the only people using fly tackle back then, fishing those areas and catching those fish. Oh, that's correct. Yeah, Ron Ron um, has got uh, quite a big collection of um, of old uh, eight millimeter uh, movies that he shot, and then might even have some sixteen mil. Him uh, him and his mates used to just get uh, get dropped at the headwaters of some of the rivers and just basically work their way down in their canoes and uh, and and get picked up down down at the mouth or stuff like that and you know, you know going down the the rivers like the Pentecost and and those sort of places that um, long before the they were accessible to, to normal normal people um, you had a you know, great relationship with the local Aboriginal population throughout there as, as you know the, the headmaster. Um, yeah, he was he was up there. You know, he preceded Malcolm Douglas up there, um, so uh, you know Ron was doing his thing. Um, you know, he had a, I think he had a um, an old glass boat with a stern drive in it, and they used to take it um, from from Cape Levique across to the various different river systems, the Sail River and stuff like that. And um, you know, the probably the only other people that were up there at the time were a few mineral mineral explorers and um, commercial barra fishermen. Um, back in the days when um, yeah, there weren't fuel yeah fuel was hard to get hold of and um you know you had to uh, you were totally self-sufficient so getting to go and, and spend a couple of weeks you know pretty much living on a, on a little boat with a man like that was uh, a real good exercise it, it um it taught you a fair bit of humility as a as a bit of a smart ass 22 year old who thought he knew everything that's for sure we're going going fishing with two headmasters yeah <laughs> <laughs> i guess um detention on a catamaran wouldn't be too bad so <laughs> Yeah, you were you were thrown thrown down in the galley and uh, and told to uh, to cook dinner and don't burn it basically. So uh, <laughs> uh, uh, that was pretty cool. Well, well, as a because uh, we were all shooting um, shooting film back in those days. I think uh, I think I took thirty six rolls of of thirty six and shot every shot that I had. So um, uh, I had a Nikonis, um underwater camera and that just lived in the in the canoe and floated around you. 
uh, brushed the lens off and just took photos of Barra and Jacks and cliffs and crocodiles and stuff like that. So it was, uh, it was, uh, yeah, a real good experience. Um, but yeah, no, yeah, and Ron, I've been fishing with Ron a few times down Melbourne, and that he's uh, he's not very well. Um, so I had a had a pretty serious stroke a number of years ago, and and uh, yeah, he's he's still kicking though. Yeah. What did you um, write any articles from those trips you did with Ron, or not with uh, not from stuff with Ron? I did um, I did a, an article in Fishing World on uh, one of our. Um, uh, shark mackerel trips we did to to Garth's Rock um, uh, in Kuvia and uh, I think that was about eighty two ish eighty no it would have been eighty three um, and uh, yeah they they ran they they gave the the, the photos some pretty good treatment ran a good um, uh, two page spread of uh, mate Jeff um, with a um, uh, with a rod bent basically the rods parallel to the horizon with the shark mackerel three hundred meters out and those trips were um, again yeah numbers trips we caught a lot of fish. Um, I think the first first three day trip we did there, we got about sixty mackerel to the rocks on fly rod, and um, and they were they were they weren't massive fish that you know twenty pounds would have pulled the biggest of them up, but um, but we were fishing oh, all the way down to five and six weights, um, and uh, and and oh, Jeff even went to two kilo tippets at one stage and was landing sort of four to five kilo shark mackerel on two kilo tippets off the rocks on on little uh, little Abu diplomat reels with one hundred and eighty meters of backing on them and. and uh, <laughs> Yeah, it was. Yeah, you just just silly stuff you did. We we because of the sheer numbers of fish we were catching, we we made a um, a sixteen foot long landing net so we could haul the fish up to the rocks, dehook them, and, and drop them back rather than sticking them with a gaff. But but um, yeah, we caught a lot of fish that trip and the um, and subsequent trips we did did up there. Uh, but yeah, I did that did an article for Fishing World on that and um, and then some other some other stuff. Um, uh, Jeff and I ran into a real big mako shark shark out here off of Perth one day and. Hook that up on conventional tackle and had some, um, yeah, had a, it was a pretty interesting sort of experience. But, um, but yeah, the fishing board published that. And then a little bit later, um, locally Western Angler magazine started up um, in the in the mid eighties, and um, yeah, I did a bit of stuff for them in the early days as well. Yeah, okay. And this was when you were still working at the tackle shop as well, so you were writing and working at the shop. Yeah, that's right. I worked. Uh, I worked at the shop from eighty two to eighty eight uh, for Mike, and we we were um, probably the uh, the number one supplier of fly fishing gear in, in certainly in WA, and, and we had a lot of you know, a lot of clientele on the east coast as well. Uh, we had a local um, uh, trade representative here, um, Mark Franklin, late Mark Franklin. Um, he had a good relationship with Kilwell in New Zealand, and um, they they used to. Send a lot of their rods in over here, so we were we were selling a lot of freshwater stuff and and stuff up to sort of ten and eleven weights in uh, in Kilwell rods, and I, I was building rods. Yeah, I'd build sort of fifty or sixty fly rods a year for for the shop <laughs> for customers. Um, but again, it was always a struggle to get hold of uh, get hold of gear. Um, and that's yeah, like I said, Jeff, the reels that Jeff made, we sold all those, um, and uh, we had. Uh, Clients who were in the oil, gas, and oil and gas game were doing regular trips back and forwards to America, and they would they would buy stuff from Bass Pro Shops for us, and we'd resell it in the in the shop um, because the the currency wasn't um, wasn't quite as you know, as uh, bad as it is now. The exchange rates and and the gear over there was considerably cheaper than here, so there was still a dollar to be made. And, and basically, it was a case of you know, getting hold of the good quality gear more so than what it cost, uh, just being able to get your hands on the stuff. Um, you know, we imported uh, fly tying materials and, and tools from um, a crowd in India. Um, can't remember the name of them, but there were some some pretty funky little um, 
packages came in brown paper and wrapped up in string that I don't think it passed through customs these days, especially <laughs> when you when you opened them up and the and the bugs all exploded across the counter and you were looking for the for the, the mortine real quick to fumigate them. But um, yeah, that's probably part of the reason customs put a stop on bringing fresh fresh skins into the into the country. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so we um, and the the guy I worked for, Mike Ranfeld, he was he was a, uh, a really keen fl- uh, fly fisherman right from the get go, and um, um, he he was actually him and Rod Harrison did that first Christmas Island trip um, um, when they were in Hawaii covering the billfish tournament over there, and uh, the one that Harrow mentioned in his in his talk, and um, he uh, yeah they uh, they came back with some some pretty good stories of uh, of catching bonefish and pretty much the the first Aussies to to get have a crack at bonefish over there. Yeah, it certainly would have been exciting times, like uncharted territories, both in the shop with sort of, yeah, being one of the specialists in the country, bringing gear in, but then also, yeah, associating with blokes that were doing things for the first time. And Yeah, the, um, yeah, the, the there was a lot of, a lot of guys got a, got a start in, in Lennon to, to cast a florid in the car park at the front of the, in front of the shop when, um, in between, yeah, cars driving in and out and, yeah, the odd car aerial got wrapped up in a fly line, and we were running up the road screaming at people to stop. That was a, that was a bit of an embarrassment. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, yeah, we we um, we sent a lot of guys on the on the, the path sort of to, to have a crack at the fly fly fishing gear. And, and the, I suppose the interest came through the association with the sport fishing um, side of things, uh, and and just sort of you know, naturally progress you know, progress through to us when um, you because know, we were the, the main suppliers of the stuff. And hell was. Hell was down the road at the uh, at the shop in Scarborough and um, and doing similar sort of things as well because of his own personal interest in it. Yeah, and through the so the shop you finished up in the late eighties and the start of the nineties you took a bit of a break from fly fishing. How to build your house and do a few things like that. Yeah, I did that. Obviously, change of jobs when I left the tackle shop and got into the building game. And um, uh, yeah, sort of a, a, I was still fishing a fair bit, um, but not um, not sort of you know in a, in a serious way. Didn't do the sort of Big trips away that we uh, that we were doing um, all through pretty much all through the eighties that uh, there wasn't a, a weekend or a long weekend that I was hanging around in Perth I was off, off fishing somewhere as most single blokes did when they're you know young and silly and you're either chasing gills or chasing fish and I was chasing fish most of the time chasing chasing uh, tail of one kind <laughs> <laughs> kind or another yeah uh, but anyhow the other kind finally caught up with me late eighties and um, and. Um, and uh, but um, and that was that was actually uh, I met my wife through um, through my my late brother-in-law who I was fishing with at the time. I met him before I met her. So uh, t- Tony and I were pretty good mates. And uh, yeah, so that, uh, that that sort of ended, that sort of ended up okay for me. Um, yeah, and then uh, yeah, I sort of got back into it um, in the in the sort of you know, early nineties uh, locally catching salmon and Samson fish um, with with the fly rod. Um, and uh, yeah, just sort of just. You know, not not sort of setting any records or or um, trying to go too hard at it, and um, it wasn't until about '95 that I um, started travelling back to places like Exmouth and and that sort of thing. By then, were you chasing like the flat species over there at Exmouth, or were you still mainly doing like the plagics? Or we um we we never fished the flats much um, when we were there, even in the early '80s, except for the places like at, at Bundegi and um, and over at the Murren Islands. Didn't certainly didn't go down the bottom of the Gulf. Access was pretty hard. Um, uh, we sort of we didn't have didn't have boats sort of you know capable of mucking around in shallow water. And the times we were there was you know, weather was always against us. You know, it's a it's a pretty windy part of the world most of the time. But um, when the 
when the conditions were good, we were generally poking our head out the west side to, to do stuff or, or over at the Murons. But um, but look, we, we fished Bundegi um, in 80, I think 82 uh, or 80, yeah, 82, I think it was. Um, saw Queenies there one, one afternoon and said, oh, this is all right. So we basically parked the boat on a sandbank and, and climbed out and were waiting around and uh, and catching Queenies on the, you know, waiting sort of up to, well, up to our neck at times. But um, we... Um, we would launch the boat. Uh, the the town, the marina that's at Exmouth now didn't exist, and um, the old the old town um, ramp was pretty much a high tide only ramp. So we'd launch the, the boat there and blast up to Bundegi, sort of 10, 12 miles or whatever it is up to there, and then just park the boat on the on a sandbank and wait for the tide to drop. And the queenies are in the channels. We'd catch them till our arms dropped off, and then um, then go back and wait for the tide to come in, pull the boat out of the water at nine or ten o'clock at night. <laughs> Um, it's just what which is what you had to do. Um, yeah. Did um, did uh, some trips to Dampier and Caratha. Um, yeah, pretty much chasing anything that that swam. But we uh, we caught plenty of queenies and uh, and little trevallies and stuff all the way around the islands uh, in the shallow stuff. Um, yeah, got connected with some pretty big GTs with the with um, with inevitable results. We didn't uh, didn't see any of them to the boat on on fly gear anyway. Got a few on conventional gear, but but braid. Braided fishing line wasn't invented. Stellas weren't invented. Um, yeah, it was was eight kilo mono and hope um, <laughs> um, for that sort of thing. Um, and yeah, we had a couple of couple of sort of cracks at billfish, but not having sort of had any experience or been around anybody that did, that did it, we never really uh, never really progressed much uh, along that sort of line to, to what it is now. Yeah, yeah. And when did you first meet Morsi over there? Was that late nineties or early two thousands or? Yeah, I think it was uh, it was late nineties. I'd um, I'd taken it upon myself in uh, about ninety seven to go chasing the big tuna in Shark Bay. Um, I had a, a good mate in Carnarvon, Ray Monk, had told me about them, and you know, they pretty much I, I knew about them, but Ray sort of told me how to go looking for them and, and what to what to go looking for. And uh, yeah, sort of first did a first trip up there with my my brother and another mate, and um, it wasn't until the final day on the way home that. Um, we ran into a, a patch of fish, and I, I got a thirty odd kilo yellowfin on ten, uh, which was the first big one I'd caught, and um, and sort of thought, okay, this is all right. So, following a few years, to, um, my brother-in-law and I, Tony and I, uh, Tony Cranston, we um, we went up there and and fished pretty hard, and did a lot of miles, and and caught a lot of uh, a lot of really good uh, long, long tails, a few yellowfin, but nothing uh, nothing huge. Um, I got uh, I got a couple of cracking long tails. That I think one of the ones that's in the world record charts was twenty four and a half on ten. Uh, we got plenty approaching that sort of size, um, and they they can pull some line. Um, but the uh, the yellowfin that we hooked up to were basically just uh, way too good for us. Um, big, seriously big fish, um, you know, hundred plus kilo fish. Um, they 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 crashing your crashing your fly sort of you know, 20, 30 feet from the back of the boat, and then the next thing you're doing is looking at it at the bottom of a spool. Um, and uh, yeah, we had we had fish take seven hundred meters of line off the. We were using Penn International four reels at the time, and uh, yeah, we we're basically getting spooled by those fish because my boat wasn't quick enough. Um, and then uh, for one of the, the third trip, we took um, uh, another local guy that I'd met, uh, uh, Dr. Richard Sally. I was cutting holes in his house, actually installing air conditioning, and just sort of happened to see a fly reel sitting on his um, on his um, bookshelf and. A lot of the, the books on the bookshelf had his name on the spine because he'd written the textbooks and uh, he's a really smart doctor. And uh, I just got a, got in conversation with him and uh, invited him to come fishing with us. And he uh, he ended up nailing a 43.5 kilo yellowfin on eight, and, oh, yeah. uh, which is, is uh, which broke the uh, long-standing world record and it probably 
probably won't won't ever be beaten. I don't think because not too many people are chasing fish like that anymore. Um, and uh, yeah, and Morsi, you know, Morsi actually rang me up and uh, and congratulated me. So that was sort of the first contact I had with Pete. And he came over here to one of the boat shows to do some casting um, stuff, and and um, yeah, sort of met him there and invited him to go fishing. We the bone the bone he, uh, the boneheads thing had sort of started up at that stage that stage. And uh, and Pete was uh, was sort of instrumental in um, in keeping that going. So um, yeah, sort of met him from there. Okay, so the Boneheads group that was through was it the Saltwater Fly Rodders of Western Australia? No, originally it wasn't. Um, okay. Originally it was set up set up through uh, just through an internet forum. Um, another local guy here, Sean Lowe, He um, he basically um, he was the I suppose the, the guy who came up with the idea of getting a group of blokes to go to Shark Bay and look for bonefish, hence the Boneheads moniker. <laughs> um, and uh, Morsi was, um, I think the I think the local local magazine Western Angler Ian Stagels used to used to run that, and um, he uh, he had something to do with getting Morsi over here. He might have I don't know I don't know whether he might have pulled a favour with with the airlines or something, but uh, but yeah, Pete came along and and I, I wasn't on that first one. Um, but a number of number of guys went up there, and they went to went to the top end of Dirk Hartog Island and camped there, and and um, and caught a heap of fish. Again, Morsi was by by and far the most experienced fly fisherman along on that trip, and um, yeah, they uh, they got some long tails and they got some giant herring, and didn't get any bonefish. But um, that's where sort of where the boneheads things were spawned from. Uh, the second one was a uh, dampier, um, and uh, we stayed on the house. I went along on that one. We stayed on the houseboat. They used to be up there, and uh, and that was the, the first exposure to uh, to blue bastards um, with with, uh, with Lance Christie and uh, and Pete. Um, and then I just said to him, "Well, if you want to catch a big fish, come fishing with us in Shark Bay." So he did, yep. and um, yeah, we um, we caught a lot of fish, a lot of big fish that trip. Pete got a ninety, what was his fish? Ninety three pound, forty one and a half kilos on on ten, and uh, which set the bar, the world mark, and uh, we were pretty happy about that. Um, we always wanted to get that. We wanted to get that hundred pounder. That was the that was the goal. Forty five kilo fish, but um, yeah, just never managed to get one to the boat. Yeah, it's still an impressive fish. Like that's an unreal feat on that tackle. No, they're just um, yeah. It's it's yeah, yeah. A lot of good luck and clean living, I think, goes into landing <laughs> fish like that on that on that gear. And um, with Pete's Pete's fish was um, uh, yeah, that was that was just a, a knockdown drag out uh, thing. The last. Probably the last half an hour, the fly line never left the reel, um, and the the line went in and out of the guide so many times it actually tore the coating clean off the fly line. There was basically a, just a big spaghetti of fly line coating hanging off the uh, off the guides as the line went in and out. It was basically an, an inch by inch thing, just an inch in and an inch back. Um, it was uh, yeah, it was an, a knock, a real hard knuckle. Uh, like the, those big circles, just trying to break those circles of the fish under the boat, and when you've only got a rod that's capable of sustaining sort of six or seven kilos and and a line that's going to break it sub ten, uh, you hope. And um, yeah, and it was uh, yeah that, that that just goes to show just you know what it takes to catch fish like that that set the that set those sort of world records like those those big marlin that um, that Tom Evans and, and Dean and Co have uh, have caught. And uh, yeah, it's a it's it's not just a uh, go. Oh, I'm going to go and catch one of those sort of fish sort of thing. It's um, uh, yeah, it's it's. Work has to go into it, and that's we worked pretty hard for the fish. We were in Shark Bay. We were doing doing stuff in in my little eighteen foot alley boat that people just would shake their heads in the sort of conditions that we uh, we got caught out in at times. Um, there was a couple of couple of uh, you know quite reflective moments sitting on a beach that um, when we we got through one one particular trip that um, 
uh, out to the, out to the, towards the islands. That um, yeah, we were pretty much going for the the epurbs and the um, and the life jackets at one stage, but managed to get through it and um, yeah, uh, live to talk about it. All part of the adventure, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a bit smart. I think I'm a bit smarter these days, but it's it's a oh, it's, it comes down to an experience thing, knowing. Um, Knowing what you can and can't get away with, but uh, but we actually that day we got caught. We got caught in a place we probably shouldn't have been in an overloaded boat, and um, and uh, yeah, but we got a got a got around a, you know, a trip that would normally take a couple of hours. Took four, and we we're in sort of four meter beam on seas with visibility down to about three or four hundred meters, and yeah, it was uh, it was pretty gnarly. But yeah, we, can, we got yeah, we got caught. You, you can keep that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't want to do that again either. So. Uh, but no, so so yeah, so yeah, that was that was sort of a. The time we um, the, we sort of got to, got to know Pete really well, and 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 yeah, since then we've you know, Pete's come over here a number of times. We've gone to New South and caught caught, caught up with him, um, and uh, yeah, we've done a fair bit of fishing together now. It's been good. Yeah, we had him up this weekend. I organised a um, casting clinic through the shop, so we had people on the Saturday and Sunday, and then this afternoon I went down the park with him and cast a few new rods and lines and that sort of thing. And he was pretty stoked to hear that I was talking to you because he said, like, you've got to ask Noddy about um, fishing sinking lines and dredging, and he said he's probably the best person in the country to talk to about it. So he was quite excited to hear that we were having a chat. Yeah, well, with the um, the sort of the level we've taken it to now was... Uh, we were we were fishing sinking a lot of sinking stuff like back in the eighties because it was pretty much nobody owned floating fly lines um, and even if we we're fishing in shallowish water we we were all using um, the old uh, scientific angles high speed high density shooting heads um, so so fishing deep wasn't really a wasn't really a uh, an unknown thing to us and I was I was bombing flies down the, at the Muron Islands sort of down fifteen to eighteen meters um, with those shooting heads catching little rankin cods and, and little red emperors and stuff um, back in back in the day just mucking around and even when we were in um, in, in Shark Bay chasing the tuna if we were if we'd um, we'd stop for a, a session an anchor and burley session to catch some snapper we were fishing in sort of twenty meters of water and we're, we're bombing flies down twenty meters um, catching pinkies and you know, six seven kilo coral trouts and little rankin cods and stuff like that um as well as as well as the spaniards and things uh, down deep um, i certainly but, think it's a um it's a fishing style that's underutilized in australia like i know here in harvey bay the flats because of the um the commercial netting and that sort of thing they're not what they used to be but we've still got plenty of big goldies out in the deep water and snapper and like all different types of trevallian mackerel species so it's something that i want to this season put a bit more effort <laughs> into and understand a bit more um just because it can be a bit of a lucky dip here like we can be fishing for snapper but then you hook up to a 20 or 30 kilo cobia um so you never know what you're going to hook so yeah well it's i I sort of look at it as the you know if you live in a place where the water's shallow and you can see the fish happy days but i don't have any fishing like that within a thousand kilometers of you know for big fish um with a thousand kilometers of where i live so if i want to catch fish that i like to catch i've got to get down to them or bring them to me and sometimes they won't come to me so yeah, getting down to them was the natural progression, and and I suppose the the stuff that we do now um, stems back to um, a, a trip that um, uh, we went out locally uh, back in the mid two thousands when um, when the sat the Samson fish aggregations sort of became a thing for jigging the jigging guys out of Perth, um, and they you know, massive schools like schools three four times the size of the MCG of Samson fish on um, on this sunken um, ship's graveyard off the back of Rottnest Island. And uh, you know, there was a quite a um, quite a 
successful um, jigging uh, charter boat exercise happening out there. And uh, we got invited to go along on, on a boat one day and, and by chance, um, Al Philiskirk Fish and, uh, and Morsi were in town. Um, I think Chris Batty from Melbourne was there as well. Um, and now we um, we got a chance to uh, to fish fly rods off the back of the off the back of the boat while the boys were were jigging Samsons and breaking rods and gear and scraphite was flying everywhere and doing all that sort of stuff and but the fish were at at one hundred and ten meters and um, and uh, and you know, hanging hanging quite deep so the boys with the jigs again to them no worries but we were there trying to sort of work out ways of getting the flies down and we all had uh, had sinking big sinking fire lines and lots of running line and. Um, sinking shooting heads and that and uh and Morsi had some some of that tungsten putty stuff and he he loaded up a big flashy profile with some of that and basically made a big cast up up the drift and and let it drift down and then we just got to got to sinking lines down and we were probably plumbing the, the sinking lines down 50 meters so we were stripping the all the fly lines off the reels and we had a we had basically gel spun backing lying around everywhere and using fish tubs actually to to just to, for the backing to go into so we'd just get the um strip the line off and get it to sink down sink down sink down and uh and then basically start working the fly rod like a jig rod until you got to the fly line and then start stripping so it wasn't um it was more an exercise in seeing how far you could actually get a, a fly down than actual fly fishing but um it was yeah just uh proved the point i think um, i think they got the boys i didn't get a fish that day but uh morsey and fish and and richie neats who was along with us they they all got uh, all got samson's and uh yeah it was was pretty cool one thing we did do that day was, like I said, you know, the old bring your fish to you. Um, the tops of that top of that school of Sampson's was at about, I think, from about, about 70 metres. And uh, I'd made up a burly cage um, uh, and it was basically based on a, a picture in Lefty Cray's original book where he had an, an inverted basket that they used to jam um, uh, bait fish and stuff in. Drop it over the side with a, with a weight on the bottom so the open end was, was facing down let it go down and just give it a give it a yank all the stuff would fall out and uh and then just stagger that up which would then bring the fish up in the column and, and we could actually see the fish on the echo sounder coming up higher and higher in the column as i was dropping this this basket with with chopped up pilchards in it um and so we got those fish from 70 meters up to sort of 40 meters so they're they were much, much more accessible to us with the fly rod um, so yeah that was that was sort of the, the first part of it but I'd um, I'd always wanted to um, to to catch our local WAG fish, um, not as in Mulloway, as in WAG fish, um, in relation to the pearl perch. Um, and generally, they're they're found in deeper water. Um, I've tried tried all sorts of stuff around shallow reefs and and burling and that sort of thing, and, and couldn't couldn't get a chance to couldn't get near them. So um, my son and I were were fishing up off. Um, um, little coastal town up a little holiday house 240 k's up the road in Lehman a little crayfishing town and uh we were we were mucking around with flies one day and and uh I dropped one down 30 meters 32 meters and hooked up and um looking at the sound and the uh the fish showing on the sounder were definitely our jewfish they show up a particular shade of blue on the on the sounder and I hooked up on this fish and and um, much to my surprise it um, ran me around a rock so um so I had to rethink our plans but um we sort of proved that we could do it so um we uh we sort of took it uh, took it a bit further and um started using uh yeah wrapping our flies with with uh solder on the shanks and uh using big um um what should we call it? Dumb, dumbbell, uh, dumbbell type eyes um 
tying you know, basically big clouses or big half and half deceivers. Um, and uh, yeah, the, so the flies are big and they're heavy. And the whole idea is the flies got to sink faster than the line. Otherwise, all you're going to get is tangles as the as the line. If the line sinks quicker than the fly, it just drags the fly behind it, and it'll just get tangled up. But if the if you can weight your fly so that it sinks at the same sort of speed as the as the line or faster, uh, well then you, you're going to get down a lot a lot quicker. So sort of started working on those sort of techniques um, and using longer running lines because your your standard standard length um, you know 100 foot running line and a 30 foot shooting head is only 130 feet. And we're fishing in sometimes in you know close to 150 feet of water, and allowing for a little bit of little bit of scope, a little bit of angle on the on the line. You um, you still want to have fly line on the reel rather than, than sort of stripping the the braid. Um, yeah, and uh, and manage to um, manage to sort of work out how to, to position ourselves so that we get a get the boat down, get the fly down while holding the boat in position over the fish rather than just waiting for the drift. The water's too deep to to. Be just making a cast up up drift, and then by the time you you're over that fly line, uh, you're going to be nowhere near the bottom. Uh, if you're in 15 meters, yeah, that you can you can fish like that. Um, but we're basically spot locking the boat just by using the using the throttle and the and the GPS. I don't have a encoder. Yeah, and so you'd have to like current would play a massive thing in that. Like you'd only be able to fish in what sub sort of two knots or sub one knot of current. Oh yeah, absolutely. We we don't get a lot of inshore current here, um, and, and unless it's sort of late summer, we get the Lewin current comes down the coast, and but that very rarely sort of peels in that you know within sort of five or six miles of the coastline. Um, wind is always a factor. Um, we live in a pretty windy part of the world, so obviously on days when it's blowing fifteen to twenty, we're not chucking flies at, at fish and trying to get flies down deep. Um, so yeah, it's it's you know a lot of things have got to come together to be able to, to achieve it, but. We've uh, we've managed to, to bomb flies down fifty meters, um, catch dewfish. Um, my son's caught a couple of coral trout off off there, which are pretty rare to catch, and that's about the, the southernmost limit of, of where you catch trout on a you know, reasonably regular basis. Um, so that's been good, and of course, there's got a couple of spots where there's some pretty big schools of really angry Samson fish as well. So um, you know, we can connect with those pretty pretty easily. Um, there again, they're in one of those spots is in 50 meters, uh, but the fish generally hang between sort of 20 to 25 meters. So we can uh, we can bomb a fly down to them, or or have one guy working a jig while while the fly is sort of sitting down there, and it gets them all excited. And as soon as you start moving that fly, and you know, you're sort of 15 or 20 meters under the boat, and you're uh, you're getting hooked up on a pretty angry sort of 20 to 30 kilo samson. It's good when you catch them, you hook them on the surface if they're just milling around because you get a 50 meter head start on them hitting to the bottom, but that doesn't happen that often. I guess that's um, something I'm pretty excited about with trying dredging here in the bay. Typically, a lot of our inshore waters are sub sort of 15 metres. Um, and like particularly up in Platypus Bay, you don't get a whole lot of current. So it'd be quite achievable to do. Like it's a different story on the eastern side of Fraser Island there. Like we've been yeah, bait fishing and plastic fishing over there before chasing reefies. And it's just the current's absolutely ripping at times. So the fact that we do have some of that shallower water where you get just trevally stacked up and... All, all numbers of pelagics and that sort of thing. I'm pretty keen to give that a crack. Yeah, yeah. We look. We're not using anything out of any gear out of the ordinary. Um, I'm, I'm usually fishing an 11 weight. Uh, I really love my my Sage One 11 weight. Uh, it's been a really good rod. Uh, I've bent it a lot of times on some really good fish, um, and uh, and usually a, a length of T14 or T17. Um, I think uh, Sage are doing sort of integrated um, Leviathan lines now with with big heavy heads on them. And, integrated you know, in touch i think the biggest the biggest thing you've got to 
look at is the running lines you use or fly lines you use that you know, as minimum just keep the stretch as much stretch out of it as you can you've got to maintain contact with that fly at, at, at pretty much at all times and we're not um, we're not just bombing the fly down. We're we're basically stripping the stripping the line off the reel. So you try and maintain some sort of contact with the fly because fish will take it on the drop, and and the fish that that are angry and live close to rocks, you don't want them to get their head turned around and, and bury you um, if you can avoid it. So if you're staying in contact with the fly, you can you can feel that feel that take, especially with the with the, the low stretch lines, um, makes it. I think that makes a big difference. So, are you making most of your lines, or are you running those integrated lines like a Leviathan? Like, I think a Leviathan's a twenty foot, uh, twenty six foot um, shooting head, basically, and then an integrated intermediate line after that to make a. I think it's a hundred foot line in total. Yeah, right. Well, uh, no, I'm uh, I'm, use, I'm using a, a length of T T fourteen to or through to T twenty, depending on what what outfit I'm using. Um, and uh, and it's usually just a yes, your bog standard thirty foot length. Um, you know, either either we did have uh, did have some bulk um, spools available here of, of that stuff, um, but I don't know if there's any any of it around. But um, I uh, I mostly make mine up as thirty foot thirty foot heads and just use them on the appropriate rod. And uh, and the running lines are generally making them around one hundred and fifty feet long. Um, yeah. Again, we. We did have uh, access to the um, some of the Rio running line, um, which was the the stretchy sort of fly line stuff, and uh, we made 150 foot um, running lines out of that. But that's when we sort of started working out that get the stretch out of it is a uh, is a big thing. And and I'm I'm currently using some really old school stuff that I had was just stored on an old overhead reel. Um, it was a um, uh, a Japanese uh, deep water fishing line. We used to just sell. We used to call it braided fishing line back in the day in the tackle shop, and uh, that's a very low stretch sort of line. I just spliced a couple of um, a couple of loops under the end of it, braided mono loops under the end of it, and I'm just using that now currently. Uh, I think Rio do make a um, do make a no stretch um, running line for the um, spay fishing, but I haven't been able to access any of that over here. I don't frequent tackle shops as much as I used to, so yeah. um, um, I've got. Yeah, I'm not not a, not that much of a, a gear snob as I as I used to be. I just basically use what I can get my hands on. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, having said that, I've you know, got a reasonable collection of uh, of you know, decent sage gear and uh, and and I like using it. Um, hasn't let me, hasn't let me down. When we're talking like um, T14, T17, that's how many grains per foot, isn't it? Like. Yeah, that's right. So, um, yeah. so what's a T thirty foot T fourteen's four hundred and twenty grains, which yeah. is sort of, um, it's probably you know just a bit overlining an eleven weight, um, uh, but uh, it does the, does the job. Yeah, um, it's still most with our fishing, we generally make a um, generally make a decent sort of cast, like a, a you know, sixty odd foot cast. Um, work out which way the boat is, if there's any wind and or current, which way the boat is moving. Um, position try and position the boat over the fish, and cast up current if there's any. And um, and let the line drop down so that you try and try and minimise that chance of the line tangling rather than just dumping it over the side of the boat. Um, so so you still have to be able to, be able to cast it, even though the flies are big and heavy, um, they're still castable, and um, it's still uh, still one of those uh, those sort of fly fishing things. You're know, making a cast, um, so you're not just dropping it over the side of the boat like you're dropping a leadhead jig. Yeah. So you're using like a big oval cast, like a constant tension cast, just to be able to deal with the weight. Just um, yeah, big. Don't don't try and do any fancy loops. Just um, yeah, I'm just generally flicking out a, a forward cast, just doing a bit of water haul and just a big uh, round arm cast. And uh, yeah, there's plenty of weight in that line and that uh, to carry it out. And um, um, yeah, don't get pinned by a, 
really sharp six o because believe me they go that that line drives them in real hard i've I'd knocked myself in the arm a couple of years back and that wasn't a lot of fun digging that out with the with the leatherman yeah i guess open that loop right up and keep it away from the rod tip as well because otherwise you could explode a um an expensive rod pretty pretty easily uh yeah yeah absolutely i'm um, i'm tying my flies on big 60 stainless steel maruto uh, 1930 hooks these days um i like those those hooks for the sort of fishing we're doing i've i've used sl12s and all the those sort of hooks but i've uh, pretty much gone back to the the maruto hooks that we used to use back in the 80s when the, they were the sort of the first of the chemically sharpened hooks that came out of japan and and the um, the hookup rate has um, has certainly uh, certainly ch- increased a lot since I went back to using those big hooks, big wide gape too, so they get around the big jaw bones of the you know the, the jewfish and the Samson fish. You've got a massive jaw jaw structure. You know the um, the, the, the decent sized WA jewfish can you know can you can stick a you know an AFL football in its mouth. So. Um, they um, and they're and they're opportunistic feeders. You know if something gets close to them, they're going to suck it in and. Um, you know, the guys have pulled some, um, you know, things like you know, kilo and a half stingrays out of them. Um, you know, they'll they'll eat pretty much anything. You know, all the squids and octopuses and fishes you'd like to, and crayfish as well. Yeah, um, so they're just so, big, big garbage guts. Oh, absolutely. And uh, and when they 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 like any fish, they um, uh, they have bite times and they have uh, yeah, times when they're when they're not playing the game. Um, but Morsi came over here three or four years ago for just to come fishing with me up at uh, up at Lehman just to, to get some uh, some jewies on the fly rod and uh, uh, we had three days of you know like fish everywhere on the sounder but just not playing the game didn't matter whether we threw a fly down there a jig or a lump of bait just nothing happened then the um, the fourth day we we hooked a fish and got it up to the boat and he coughed up a little locky and was like was like a light switch had been turned and they were basically turned on from there and. Um, yeah, we uh, we got some good fish. Pete got a nice little nine ten kilo one, and, and it was uh, good to tick that box off. Yeah. Do you find with the jewies that um, the like color of the fly makes a difference or anything like that? Like, does, do you think UV or anything like that comes into play? I don't, I don't overthink it that much. Um, I pretty much stick with white with a bit of color. You know, yeah, it's um, uh, yeah, there might be a bit of chartreuse on some of my flies. There might be a bit of pink. Um, they've um, I've you know I've I've picked up a uh, a tandem hook billfish fly with you know with uh, made out of um, uh, artificial materials you know fish hair or whatever it was made out of and chucked that on a, on a hook and, and caught fish on them too but but in general the the um, just the big big saddle hackles on a on a half and half or a klaus eva or whatever you want to call it it's been the pretty much been the fly that's caught most of the fish whether it's because the hook point's riding up, um, you know, we're tying tying with a lot of weight on the on the shank and and in, and uh, and the big bead chain eyes and uh, or big um, dumbbell eyes, and also you know might put a double zero sinker on the on the bottom of the loop of the fly just to add that little bit of you know, extra gram or two of uh, of weight just to, to get it down that bit further. Um, they uh, they seem to seem to work pretty well. So um, yeah, white white's always been my go to sort of color in that um, that thing where I don't think we're um, we're imitating anything as such, unless you're, you're sort of imitating a piece of half decomposed octopus. Which plenty of blokes that fish bait will, if a if a jewy baths up a uh, an oki onto the deck, they'll put it straight on the hook and drop it back down. It's pretty much it's a go to bait. Yeah, um, it's, as, it's, as uh, you said, a, they're an opportunistic feeder. So if something goes swimming past, they're probably going to have a crack at it. Yeah, for sure. The Samson's probably a little bit different. Um, we tend to use a bit more colour on the. On the on the flies, um, probably more so along that sort of chartreuse sort of sort of um, thing. Um, why it does it does tend to make a bit of a difference um, um, when the when the fish are being, you know that's not playing the game. But um, 
again, they, when they're turned on, they've, they'll they'll you know you chuck pretty much anything at them and they'll and they'll eat it. So it's not it's not we're not imitating crabs to fussy permit. We're we're looking at fish that have pretty much got to eat and um, yeah, put something in front of them and they'll eat it. Yeah. Do they um like do the Jewfish and the Samsons prefer a certain type of retrieve or is it? Samsons are certainly certainly fast, um, without question. Um, it's a double-handed yeah. strip under the arms. Yeah, of yeah, that's, which is fraught with danger with a you know, rampaging fish on the other end. But, um, but yeah, you're stripping pretty fast and, and basically you know, using the rod tip as a jigging motion and you get bit on the drop a lot of the time as well. You know, if, you, if you're dropping a fly down, then all of a sudden it starts speeding out. Um, uh, there are times when we've got, uh, when they're in the right mood and they'll come up to the surface, we can keep them milling around the back of the boat. Um, we're fishing areas that's um, it's quite a um, quite a high intensity uh, rock lobster or crayfish industry, and the Sampsons are really well known for coming up around the back of the cray boats and eating discarded cray bait. Even in fifty and sixty meters of water, I've seen them zooming up from the bottom. And and as they're um, as something we found out through the um, the Sampson Fish Research Project we were involved in in the, in the mid two thousands, they they've got a mechanism where they can void the gases in their gut cavity through a little membrane at the top of their gills, and um, uh, and while I've actually watched them swimming up out of deep water, chasing a cray pot up, and, and was watching the venting trail of bubbles coming out of the top of their gills. So, as uh, was we were the, the, the fishery scientists who, who started the, the research project were really curious as to what the, the gases were, and, and it wasn't until that um, we did the, the Samson Science project in two thousand and five, six, seven, where we tagged about ten thousand Samson fish off the off the Perth metro area that um, that that sort of came to light that that's how their, their mechanism, and a lot a lot of fish don't have that mechanism, hence the, they get um, you know quite ruptured organs like the our, you know, our West Australian Jewfish, Mulloway, you know, the Black Jews, and that they suffer from barotrauma pretty badly. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, we pretty much most of the Jewfish that we we um, will uh, take home to eat, you, you you'll notice they've got a ruptured swim bladder. Um, that's how the gases get out into their gut cavity through their swim bladder, and and they they um, but look their survival rate is not um, is not great. Uh, but I, I always maintain that any fish that let go back in the water properly has got more chance of surviving than one sitting in the bottom of an esky. Yeah. Um, so that? there's sorry, do you use um, like release weights or anything like that when you're absolutely them back down? yeah okay absolutely um, pretty much um, any any demersal that we get up we use a release weight which were the ones that are available here were invented by a, a mate of mine Gary Lilly and a couple of his mates in a drunken Friday afternoon in his shed and um, Gary uh, another another good mate has passed away but um, another great fisherman another thinker and uh, he was sort of right on the on the edge of that whole Samson fish chicken thing working with Al Bevan here. And um, yeah, he came up with a sort of inverted hook with a with a bomb on it, and um, and it's mandatory now if you're fishing offshore, you have to have that on on board. It's a fisheries it's fisheries legislation, and um, the fish have got a much better chance of surviving if they're put back down that twenty or thirty meters. Um, we're also pretty um, pretty mindful of that in in how we fish now. We don't we, if we if we go we don't go out and catch ten fish, ten jewfish just for the sake of catching ten jewfish. Um, there was, uh, yeah. Th- there are days when you can't get away from them, um, and uh, and we just basically stop fishing for them, go and do it, so do something else. Uh, there's a quite a quite a big push here um, through through fisheries about the um, yeah leaving basically leaving the demersals alone. Get your your one fish for your for your bag, which you're only allowed. You're only allowed one fish per person or two per boat of the WA Jewfish, and um, and then they stop fishing for them because you will catch regardless. You will catch fish. It's aimed at aimed at you know stopping guys from high grading and all that sort of stuff and um, yeah 
basically you know looking after the fish they're a they're a slow growing um um yeah low spawning number fish um you know the the, the and the big ones are the are the big spawners um that's been proven through research uh but it has but it also has been proven that they they don't all die um we've had tag returns from fish that are caught out been caught out of 90 meters um one guy i know has actually caught the same fish on four separate occasions over a three-year period um so um yeah there's a there's a fair bit of science behind the sort of looking after the fish stocks over here they're, they're the fisheries for their for their, their they have their faults, but they they also are on the ball. It's good that they are doing all that sort of um, research. Like we try and educate as many people in the shop about fish handling practices and release practices. And we had some of the guys from fisheries drop in a big bag of venting needles to stuff like the dewies and threadfin salmon and whatnot. So it's good to see that they're getting behind it and trying to help promote um, the safe release of fish and handling and to move on. Like if you've got your fish, just keep going. Like. Um, you don't need to be harassing those fish and potentially losing them. So. Well, that's right. They're um, yeah, they, they um, yeah, they're they're not a fish that uh, that can you know, is a catch and release species. Even though some guys do do you know a lot of, and a lot of the and I've been critical of it online. A lot of the YouTube heroes are um, you know, they're, yeah, they're ripping these ripping these fish up on jigs and they're flash little skinny rods that bend into all sorts of weird shapes and stuff like that, and you know, holding the fish out and waving them tails in the camera and fishes out of the water for I don't know how long and then they just spear them back and it's all you know on there for, for YouTube likes and it's yeah it just doesn't cut it with me yeah I think we've got a duty as fishermen like we need to if we want to enjoy the fishery and have it for years to come and for future generations like we've got to be responsible like there's no point going getting a magazine cover photo or a YouTube like when you can be looking after the fish so everyone can enjoy it Absolutely, absolutely. Oh, we we now um, make a point of, um, of bringing our fish up slow. Um, you know, let them decompress as quickly as they can. It's the the first the first five meters is the critical five meters for us getting them away from the reef. But once we we know we're onto a onto a dewy um, or a, you know, any of the other demersal species, the our bull chin groper and um, and uh, and snapper pink snapper. Um, yeah, we just go slow on them. Just bring them up slow. Let them let them naturally vent some of the gas out of their out of their cavity. And you don't you don't tend to bring fish up with blown eyes and that sort of thing. Um, it's funny. Some some fish will will come out of deep water and, and be fine. Other fish will come out of shallow water and be blown up. Uh, it's a it's an unknown. I I picked up a fish on a jig years ago out of eighty meters of water here, and it came up. All its scales were standing on end. Its eyes were blown out of its head. That fish was never going back. Um, no matter how slow I brought it up. Um, so, uh, but yeah, the, the um, we we just don't don't lift them out of the water now. I've, I've, my boat's low enough sides that we can just manhandle the fish at the side of the boat, put the release weight in, drop them back down, and then um, yeah, if we've if we're not taking one, if we're going to you know not take one for the esky, we go and do something else. Yeah, and you've uh, caught some pretty impressive jewies on fly. Like I think the photo you sent me that was what fifteen and a half kilo, and that was on a 20, 20 pound tippet. That's the best one I know of that's been taken on fly. Yeah. Um, it's certainly the best one I've caught. Um, yeah, that was a that was a that, that was a good fish. Um, yeah, that uh, that and that fish fought every every inch to the to to the side of the boat. We had to you know use a gaff to lift into the boat where we normally hand grab them. Um, yeah, that was and that was on. That might even be on my on my ten weight or my eleven. I can't remember, but yeah, ten kilo tippet. Um, and um, and it was a knockdown drag out. You know, it probably took me. Probably north of ten minutes, maybe fifteen minutes to get that fish to the boat. Um, and uh, yeah, I was using, you know, I was pulling every little trick I could out of the out of the out of the playbook to uh, to stop that one. Um, it was uh, it was like when Morsi and I were fortunate enough to go to the Abrolhos in two thousand and six and 
fished with one of the, the crayfish in there, Nat, Nat Jettero, and uh, we fished for the big Samsons around his boat. And, um, yeah, we were we were dropping flies into 40-kilo Samsons at the side of the boat and, and trying to stop them on 10-kilo on tippets. Um, and we did. We stopped a few, um, but we lost a few as well. Um, and, you, yeah, it's just bare-knuckle stuff. Um, I suppose it's, it's akin to the... To the stuff, not, I've never fished Florida for tarpon as much as I'd love to, and it's a, it's akin to the sort of close to boat side stuff you see those guys do, where where they're they're putting you know seventeen eighteen pounds on a fish with a twenty pound tippet, um, and uh, and that's pretty much um, how I fight my fish. I fight my fish hard, you know, go as hard as go as hard as you can, and know what your know what your gear can handle, what your rod's pulling, you know, you, you know, get a set of scales and a mate, and do a bit of lifting with the. You know, know what angles of uh, you're going to be able to pull a you know, a decent curve into the to the rod, and, and what weight you're going to be pulling on it, so that you can stop a fish. And if he's if he's not taking line, you should be getting line back. Yeah, I know Andy Mill from the Millhouse podcast, like um, excellent tarpon fisherman. He's caught just about everything, but like he's a big advocate for setting up a pulley on a table, that sort of thing, with a um, yep. a barbell or a bucket of sand or whatever you want, and saying to people, right, I pull, how much pressure do you think's on there? And then going, well, you're actually pulling this much. Then going, right, I try and pick this barbell up off of the ground. Um, and most people won't even budget one bit. But by using correct rod angles and technique, um, you can put a lot of pressure on there. Oh, for sure. Um, yeah, and for, for guys like him, you know, um, Olympic class skier, it's all about muscle memory. Um, yeah. You know, it's about knowing. And I suppose the more you fish, the, the more memory you retain. Um, that's why you tend to. You know, pop the first couple off on a on a trip because you've sort of forgotten how to do it, but um, but no, it's all about uh, yeah, just knowing know what your gear can pull and, and how much. I I nailed about a twenty four twenty five kilo Samson um, in local waters when my son and I were fishing for snapper one one afternoon in June a couple of years ago, and this sambo just stuck its head at the back of the boat and I threw one of the big jewfish flies out on a ten weight and. We were only in nine meters of water, and and um, that fish led me a pretty merry dance around the boat. That was when I was pretty happy to get to the boat. And uh, but yeah, that was again just yeah, hand down hard on the spool, and like yeah, you know, it's either wasn't so much a stop them or pop them, but um, but stop them as stop them taking as much line as you possible. If any line they're going to get, they're going to be working for it, uh, and that's the way you beat big fish. I guess too having that like sacrificial sacrificial part of of the leader of like twenty pounds. It's a safety thing as well. If you've got one of those big fish just going to town, at least you know if you get it wrapped around your finger or something like that, it's going to pop. Like you're not getting dragged over or you're not losing a limb. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know how you'd go sort of, you know, with a with a you know, 50 or 60 or 70 pound leader or something with a, a big a big fish and a, and a wrap around your thumb. I'd, yeah, you'd be a deglove moment of your thumb, I reckon. Yeah. Um, or, you or yeah. The, the the fly line becomes the fuse. Um, yeah, most fly most fly lines are sub fifty pound breaking strain. That that you know in the main, I think there's some that are that are you know seventy pound cores. But I've uh, I don't fish with them. Um, and uh, yeah, um, we we you know going just going back to the shark mackerel days. You know we were pretty conscious of only using twenty pound backing because back then um, eight kilo tippet was as hev- heaviest that we'd ever fish because the ten the ten kilo class that hadn't been sort of accepted into IGFA. So. Um, you know, we were fishing with 20 pound Dacron and, um, which basically broke under 20 pounds. So, so if you're fishing an eight kilo class tippet, which is what 17.6 pounds, and you've got 20 pound backing, you want to make sure your backing knots are pretty good. Yeah. Um, if you're going to be, <laughs> especially if you're snagged up or you, you're trying to stop a fish or something and it's a long way out, but, uh, didn't have too many backing, uh, backing moments. Uh, most, mo- you know, most of them were from fish hitting the backing, you know, where it's, um, where it was going in the water, you know, especially in those big schools of shark mackerel when they're going crazy. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I guess going back to like the dredging and that sort of thing, like a lot of people talk down on it goes like saying, oh, it's, it's fishing with fly tackle, it's not fly fishing. But from what you've described, you're still making a cast. Like there's a lot of technique involved. Like you've got to get the boat position right. You've got to have the wind right, the current, all that sort of thing. So I suspect most people that are probably talking down on it have never had a crack and they've probably never even gone reef fishing because there's so many things you have to get right for it all to come together. Oh, yeah. Um, you, you take it back to the conventional fishing stuff. Look, there's lots of guys go conventional fishing for, for bottom fish and there's also a lot of guys that don't catch a lot of fish and other guys that do. And the guys that do catch are the guys that are good at it. Mm. Um, um, yeah, it's it's, it's the, the getting those, those skills and working it out. And, um, yeah, I know there's the argument about fishing with fly gear and, and, and uh, all fly fishing, but um, at the end of the day, we're, we're you know, using an artificial fly. We're using the weight of the line to carry the fly down. Um, uh, and um, and we're making we're making a cast in, in particular, um, and, and I see that making the cast thing has been the you know it sort of separates us from the from the jig guys where the line is carrying the fly, um, you know. So uh, and and I, I think that's fairly crucial to what we do as to into successfully getting the fly down there on on you know, you know that you go, take the trouble to position the boat and and hold it in in you know the the right spot. Um, and uh, you want to make every cast count um, because you, the fish that we're fishing for are generally sitting in really tight areas. Yeah, you, know, you might, you know, they might be in a in a five meter radius. Um, and uh, you know, we we're using just uh, you know reasonable you know, recreational electronics to find them and um, and know what they look like on the sounder and and uh, and yeah, position the boat as, you know, appropriately for um, for where the fish are and getting down to them. Yeah, and do you have? Um... I know the sharks on the Samsons and that are pretty bad. Do you have the same issue with Jewfish over there as well being sharked? Or? It's getting worse. Yeah. Um, uh, it's getting worse. Uh, with the areas I'm fishing are not as heavily fished as, as some of the lo- local metro stuff, but anecdotally I, I hear a lot of stories about, you know, local guys losing Jewfish and um, and in particular pink snapper. We've got a really, really solid pink snapper fishery in the metro area with um, – you know, a couple of charter boats that you know run that run out and um, you know, and taking taking uh, paying clients out and you know they're they're on a, any given morning uh, every client gets his two two legal you know the legal bag limits two per two fish and they they're taking their you know twenty to thirty decent sized snapper home you know fish that are you know sort of north of four kilos up to sort of twelve um, you know an average sort of weight of sort of seven to ten kilos. Um, and that's been going on for a few years, but um, I've heard of a number of boats going out and, and losing it just as many fish as they're bringing in whole uh, just recently. Um, the sharks are wising up, you know, they're, they're wising up to the activity, they're wising up to the, the noise of those, those big jemmies, but he's pounding away and, um, you know, the, the boat noise, the outboard noise, that maybe it's the echo sound of pings, I don't know, but um, it's just happening everywhere. It's happening, on, as, you know, I hear about the stuff on the East Coast and, you know, we've got it all the way up and down here. There's um, fisheries are doing shark depredation studies now. Um, you know, trying to come up with answers um, to what's causing it, what's not causing it. I don't know that I've got the answers for it, but um, it's we've cool. we've. Uh, Sorry, it's quite a complex situation. Like I know, here it's almost like the outboards are like a dinner bell. Like you can be nowhere near a school of tuna or a heap of bait in the bay and pull up, cut the motor, and within a few minutes you've got a big bull shark or a bronzy under the boat coming for a look. So. It's only getting yeah. worse. Like tuna season, you have to be pretty smart with how you approach schools, the size school that you fish and that sort of thing. But even stuff like um, we used to always have problems with the odd trout getting taken and that sort of thing. But 
even now like Trevally and stuff like that and black all that the sharks never really worried about it was always if it was red or red or orange sort of thing it was gone but um even yeah. this year yeah you're not so desirable species are getting taken as well yeah it's um there's there's always been up and down the coast i can think of a, a handful of spots that were really well known spots where there were a lot of sharks they were they were generally commercial mackerel fishing spots um, there's there's one off of uh, off of Cape Curvia, off of off of Whistling Rock. There. There's another one at Dampier, the Patch, um, and and yeah, everybody knew that there'd be there was lots of mackerel there and lots of sharks, and you just put the two and two together. But maybe the sharks were there because the commercial fishermen were were hitting those spots more more regularly than uh, you know. This is in the days before there were a lot of wreck fishing boats there. Um, there's you know one theory put forward about the uh, out of the Abrolhos Islands just recently was that there aren't as many cray boats in the fleet now and not as much baits going in the water. Um, they used to used to use about eleven thousand tons of cray bait per annum um, to catch about eleven thousand tons of crayfish. Um, but now that the the way the whole system is on a on a quota system, they um, they don't catch anywhere near the number of crays. The, the fleet has considerably is, is you know, down to about a third of what it was. They're not fishing as many days, and not as much bait going in the water. So that the sharks are going, oh, where's that? Where's that other boat? That you know, oh, there's another boat over there. Oh, it's a charter boat with, with ten blokes hanging over the side catching, you know, snapper and jewies. And uh, and yeah, there's that's a real problem. It's a real problem for the for the the, the shark the uh, the charter industry, the problem for the commercials, and a problem for wrecks because to take one fish home, you're losing two or three. Yeah, um, and I guess and, we and, just have to, um, as recreational <coughs> anglers, we just have to be smart about. If, if you are getting sharked, we always say to people in the shop, make sure you don't just stay in that spot and keep losing fish thinking you're going to beat them, like move. And sometimes you might have to move a few miles to get away from them. Um, so I think that's something that people have to keep in the back of their mind when they are out there. Yeah, for sure. That's um, that's the message that's coming through coming through on this side of the coast too. So um, like I said, it hasn't been that much of a problem for us where we're fishing uh, yet. Um, we did have one one season with us with the Samsons where we lost a few Samsons to sharks, uh, and I think I've had I had one Jewfish taken um, uh, last year, a little one that I got sort of the remnants back, but I've and I've only ever lost one other one in in ten years there. Um, that's in and that's in shore. That's sort of within about seven or eight miles of the of the coast. Yeah, um, guys, guys that are fishing out on the on the outer edges, the bottom fishing guys, they they tend to see a lot more. Um, and that, and that's that's what sort of mirrors the the Samson fish experience at Rottnest with the with the, the aggregations there. Pretty much you can't fish them anymore because all you're doing is killing Samsons. Uh, yeah. Every every fish you get taken, and their sharks aren't small animals. They're they 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 start at three meter whalers and they just get go north from there. Um, yeah, really big fish. Yeah, you're not, not the sort of fish you're going to go out and hook one with your your ten thousand Stella and your and your your GT rod and land. Because it's yeah. a you know it's a three hundred or a four hundred kilo shark. It's you know it's um, stand up 20, 37 kilo or something like that, and and uh, and it's you're going to be hurting at the end of it if you want to see one at the side of the boat. Yeah, they're an animal. You... When you have one nudge the boat or have a go at the prop on the outboard, it's um can be a bit daunting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've got enough trouble over here with bloody great whites eating people, but yeah, then they, then you throw the, the big whalers into the situation. Yeah. <laughs> Did you yeah, um? Uh, did you get your son? Like, is he into like your um, fly fishing as well and dredging? Or oh yeah, he is. He's um he's basically a mini me. Yeah. Um. He um he's he, he from the time he was about five or six and and discovered that there was a a job being able to design boats. That's what he wanted to do. So he went, took himself off to university at Tassie and is now, now a naval architect here designing cray boats and sea rescue boats and stuff in uh, in Port Denison, three hundred and twenty k's up the road for a company called Southerly Designs. 
pretty much a world renowned company for designing that sort of style of boat. Um, so yeah, so he's um, yeah he's been you know been into it since the, he was big enough to pick up a fishing rod, um, and uh, and it's uh, yeah learned the skills along the way about boat driving and and finding fish and and he um, he hunts and kills his own now basically. So, uh, but um, I was. The, the morning the morning I got my first jewfish on fire rod, I was actually fishing by myself. He was working at um, at Blue Water Scarborough in his gap year, and um, and I sent him a message saying, uh, "Look what I caught!" And I, I I caught three or four that morning, and he said, "Oh, bloody leave some for me." So he, he drove up that night and went out the next day, and he got a couple. And they were the, we didn't we certainly weren't the first guys to catch them. A few guys had had caught them by accident, but um, uh, but we basically targeted them, and and uh, and and I've since since got I don't look I've lost count of how many I've caught, but it's Certainly north of fifty and probably closer to a hundred. Um, and Adam's probably caught about half, half as many again over the time. Um, but he's got some good ones, sort of you know, fish up to twelve kilos, as well. Um, but he's uh, he's rebuilt himself a little fifty-year-old V one six three Haynes, and he charges around the place now in that and doing all sorts of stuff that you know, young blokes do. And um, uh, but yeah, he's uh, yeah he he's definitely into into the, the whole fly fishing and sport fishing thing. Um, yeah, basically just. Chip off the old block, I suppose. It's pretty cool that you can share that with him, and like he's had a bloody good teacher as well, so <laughs> he's had a good start. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm I'm a bit of a you know with my fishing, I've always been a bit of an introvert with it. I've never been one for the, the sort of the, the the big group sort of thing. I've been along on a few of the boneheads things, but it's 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 sort of fishing just one on one with a, with a mate or two has always been my sort of gig. And and over the years, you know, I've lost a few to you've lost a few to cancer, and um, and now Adam's come along, and him and I've pretty much fished together for the last. Well, he's what twenty six. So yeah, the last yeah you know, eighteen twenty years. Um, yeah, he's been the he's been the guy that I've been fishing with. But he now lives four hours up the road, so it's only really really um, yeah when we um, we we meet in Lehman or whatever, or if I drive up there that we get to fish together. But but no, he's uh, he's he works at he works it out. He knows how to he knows how to, to work the system out, and he's found his own spots and caught his own fish, and and uh, uh, he's he's. A lot of uh, a lot of the local fishing around Perth that he did um, in the in the sort of years in his gap year when he was back from uni, he um, he he was uh, catching a lot of fish that um, the guys sort of now claim that they sort of found like he found some local yellowtail kings and sort of worked those out by himself and uh, and that and um, uh, yeah it's, uh, it was pretty it was pretty cool to sort of see him going out there and just just doing that and and you know, catching big local inshore snapper and and stuff so yeah uh, but he can yeah he can cast a cast a fly rod pretty well and. I think his first ever lesson was up at Lura with Morsi, the trip we the trip we did over there in in about two thousand and eight or nine, and we uh, went up the up to up to Lura, and Pete took him down the park and just told me to go somewhere else, and he just um, his uncle Peter taught him how to fly cast. It is good having good tuition. Like I know the guys after this weekend's thing with Morsi, they were dropping in the shop. I was getting messages and phone calls saying how much they enjoyed it, but also too. Instead of like trying to do it on their own or like with just a mate in the backyard watching them, trying to give them some advice, having a good teacher is, yeah, you just fast track your casting so much more. And it's just a, it's an enjoyable time as well. Like if you get a group of guys down the park together and everyone's having a laugh together and share some stories and um, yeah, it's, it's a good thing. Yeah, it's certainly been a. Uh, it's certainly well from the from the time when um, when Pete was coming over here when we we're we we're chasing the chin. I did a, a, a couple of nights with Morsi, um, just a, the, the sort of fly club, the saltwater fly club here was just sort of cranking up, and um, and guys were just sponges, you know, keen to learn, and and um, and Pete was a much better communicator than I was, and um, um, 
and uh, he uh, he came along and, and did a couple of couple of nights with them, and has since done comes over every year or when he could to to do some uh, some some uh, casting uh, schools, and and he's put a number of number of local guys through the the CCI um, stuff here, so and they've they've taken it upon themselves, the guys like Graham Hurd, you know, teaching teaching guys locally. So and it's yeah, it's really really good to get get a start and the the boneheads thing has got was was something that sort of uh yeah a lot of guys got this sort of exposure to to um yeah uh, picking up the skills a lot that you that you need and honing them uh, and yeah getting a chance to fish with someone like morsey and then then later on in time guys the boneheads group like tony young and steve bradbury you know, you know local blokes who are just real good fishermen and they yeah they picked up a fly rod twenty years ago and now they're they're as good as anybody at and they catch some seriously good fish um, so they're now passing on their skills and you know as it goes down the line um, that's how it should that's how it should work yeah yeah I think we're going to start organising um, getting like our local fly fish shows together a bit more often just whether it be a Sunday afternoon cast down the park because I think sometimes if people aren't doing it all the time or if they don't have a mate that fly fishes they'll sometimes just put the rod in the cupboard and forget about it so. Um, I want to start, yeah, a bit of an initiative to get the guys together, have a beer, have a cast, and just a bit of fun. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Look, I'm, I'm, um, I'm probably a lost cause when it comes to that sort of thing because I, you know, I don't don't fish as much as I'd like to. But um, uh, the last few years with uh, with work have sort of uh, have tied me down. But that's sort of changing now, change of lifestyle and semi retirement. I basically threw threw in the towel last October and. And committed to building my son's house, and um, that's all coming to an end now. So I might actually find some time to um, to do a bit more fishing and get uh, get a bit more serious about it, and, and and maybe revisit some of those those fish that I um, that I never managed to stop, like that big tuna in Shark Bay. <laughs> well, I look forward to seeing some photos and hearing some stories when that happens. So. Yeah, so do I. It's um, yeah, I've got a, a shoulder to see to as well, so I get a bit of um, reparative surgery first, and then um, and then yeah, find a set of weights and put some muscle mass back on and go go at them. Yep. <laughs> well, we um we might wrap things up. I think we've covered a fair bit tonight. Do you have any um any tips for people that are starting out in fly fishing or want to have a, a go at doing the like you you deep water fishing and dredging and that sort of thing? Oh, well, you know, obviously anyone who wants to start out is is seek seek advice and 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 um, seek good advice. Um, you know, if you've got to dip your hand in your pocket to to get it from the the likes of you know Pete or somebody or you know any of the, the casting instructors and that or, or the local clubs will yeah do that. Um, but as far as the deep water stuff goes, pretty much have a crack at it. Um, set your gear up with um, with shortish leaders. You don't need big long tapered leaders. You know, keep everything as compact as you can. A short butt section and a short short uh, fuse or tippet. Um, Flies stick with stuff that's that's heavy. My flies weigh between three to five grams, um, so they're they're a heavy fly, um, and uh, and yeah, pretty much have a crack at it. Um, there's a lot of uh, it's a bit of a you know bit of a mixed bag, especially when you get into the tropics. But I think I, maybe maybe it's that that people don't see it as being fly fishing because you're not in you know, two foot of gin clear water and and permit and and queenies cruising around, but. Um, yeah, it's just the sort of fishing I, I like to do. Um, it's it's productive. Um, you're going to hook up with big fish, uh, which is the it's always been a thing of mine. I, I like catching fish, and I particularly like catching big fish. Um, fishing for brims never really done it for me. Is you know, it's each to their own. Um, and uh, yeah, just um, yeah, set yourself up with decent decent quality gear. Um, 
like I said, that 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 sinking sinking lines, those integrated lines, is probably the easiest way. The the, the Leviathan type lines is probably the easiest way to set it up. But but maybe back it up with a length of running line behind it, so that you can, you've got that hundred foot of line, which is going to restrict you to hundred foot of depth or 30, 30 meters. Um, back it up with a you know a, a fifty or hundred foot length of running line, so you can, you're still if you're getting down that bit deeper, you're not you're not you know, handling braid. You don't want to be handling your backing while you're and um yeah stay in touch with your stay in touch with the fly and go hard on them just like don't um, don't pussyfoot around with fish um because they 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 live in a in a sort of you know reefy environment and they'll um they'll do you at every opportunity they possibly can yeah i think there's some really good tips in there and it is yeah it's one of those fisheries that it's so accessible to a lot of people around the country like northern queensland you've got everything like your threadfin salmon you've got your jewfish your barrel all that sort of thing you've got all your different tropical reefies there over in the west you've got the jewfish and the samson so i think you could probably look at most parts of the country and find a deep water fishery that you can target those fish and yeah you might not have the gin clear flats and that sort of thing where you're sight casting but at the end of the day you're still catching fish Sometimes it can be a lucky dip, so you never know what you're going to pick up. Um, so, yeah, I think more people should look into it, and I know I certainly will. Um, I've certainly learned a fair bit talking to you already, so I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah, it's um, yeah, just have a crack. That's um, yeah, if, if you find you find you enjoy it, you'll um, you'll you'll work it out as you go along. And um, yeah, that's yeah, maybe I should have just written that article years ago about it, but um, yeah, <laughs> writing's um, yeah. The uh, you got to you got to have the, uh, the the sort of motivation to put pen to paper and um, yeah I sort of lost that writer's block. Hopefully now that you're um, retiring after your son's house, you'll get a bit more time to fish and a bit more time to write. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> All right. Well, I just want to say thanks again, Noddy, for coming on. I've really enjoyed our chat, and I think a lot of people will as well. Um, I'll keep in touch with you and look forward to seeing some more photos soon. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks, Josh. Appreciate it. Right. Thanks, mate. Cheers, mate. Mm-hmm.